Good morning. Good morning. Glad to see you all here this week. Some uh, unfamiliar faces. Uh, for those who don't know, my name is Cruz Trevino. I have the honor and privilege of being a deacon here at Waco Family Baptist Church. Um, it's not often that I have the opportunity to be in the pulpit. Um, and I say that with, for the first time, approaching it two weeks in a row. Um, we read from Psalm 66 in our opening statements, and I want to repeat this Psalm 66, verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. Also, before I begin, I wanted to approach a couple of paragraphs from our confession. Last week we spoke a lot of chapter 27. This week I'll read from chapter 26 of the church. Paragraph 5. In the execution of this power, wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself, through the ministry of his word, by his spirit, those that are giving, <clears throat> those that are given unto him by his Father, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience, which he prescribeth to them in his word. Those thus called he commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requireth of them in the world. Paragraph 6. The members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking, their obedience unto that call of Christ and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and one to another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. <clears throat> Last week we discussed the communion of the saints. As it pertains to fellowship, we discussed how our unity our oneness with Christ Jesus is the foundation of our unity, our oneness, our covenant with one another. We are a people in covenant together. This covenant means that we don't just have unity, friendship, like-mindedness, but we also have obligation, obligation to one another. Because we are in covenant with Christ, we are in covenant with all who have been redeemed. We see that the individual gifts and graces that have been given to us by God are not entirely for ourselves. We are commanded to love our neighbor. These gifts and graces are for the good of the body, for the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ. For the good of those whom you are called to care for, to bear burdens with. The scriptures say rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Romans 12, 15. And because we are bound together in compassion, in caring, in Christian love, we are able to have joy or to have sorrow for one another, as the case may be. 
This week, I would like for us to think about how this oneness, this togetherness, this covenant relationship that holds us together because of its being rooted in Christ affects our worship. Why is it important that saints would gather together for worship? Why is it that we do not just stay at home on Sunday, read our Bibles alone, and tell ourselves that we are well within the bounds of Scripture by doing that, as opposed to gathering with a local body of believers to participate in the means of grace? Again, we are in Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 19 through 25. And before I read these verses, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the doctrines that have already been expressed, for the truth that's our, that we've already heard, for the, the truth that we've got to sing. We thank you for men and women for leaders who pray for the saints, not just in our local body, but in our association, in our state, in our country, and all over the world. We thank you that as we are called to do this with one another, that we are allowed to participate, to partake in the expansion of your kingdom and its growth. This is how, this is how we grow and expand and further your kingdom through your word, through your creation, through what is considered ordinary, in which you do extraordinary things. And again, we ask that you bless our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not neglecting to meet one another. Again, the question we are attempting to answer is, why is it important that we gather together for worship? The answer I will attempt to explain from the scriptures is simply this. Because God's promises are for his people. Look with me in the book of Genesis chapter 17. Here we see God reminding Abram of his promises, his covenant that he had made with Abram back in Genesis 12. Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you 
and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This promise is repeated to Abraham, excuse me, to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. So Genesis 26, reading verses 1 through 5. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. And to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. And again, the promise is restated, this time to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, in Genesis 28. Genesis 28, starting in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. The God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Bear with me just a moment. I was trying to preach from my iPad today. That's not going to work. So we got back up. And the promises that God made are that he would make a covenant between himself, that is God, and Abraham. That Abraham would be the father of a multitude of nations. That God's covenant would not only be between God and Abraham, but between God and Abraham and Abraham's offspring, 
throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. God promises to be a God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to all of their offspring. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now we know that through the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came the nation of Israel. And Israel was enslaved by Egypt, as was prophesied in Genesis 15 for some 400 years. I'll read from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Kokorah, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey in the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God used Moses to lead his people and bring them out of bondage, as per the account in Exodus. And further and further, Scripture goes, accounting for the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, through whom he has made promises of an everlasting covenant. Through prophets, priests, kings, and judges, we see an unfolding of the people of God running after idols, being disobedient to the moral law, giving themselves over to temptations, maliciousness, evils, from time to time, we see God handing people over to their own desires, to their lust, and pronouncing judgments upon them. If you would turn to Ezekiel chapter 7. Ezekiel chapter 7. word of the Lord came to me, and you, O son of man, thus says the Lord, God to the land of Israel, and end 
The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster, behold it comes, an end has come, the end has come, it has awakened against you. Behold, it comes, your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come, the day is near, a day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Behold the day. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth. Neither shall there, show, <clears throat> neither shall there be preeminence among them. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all their multitude. For the seller shall not return to what he has sold while they live. For the vision concerns all their multitude, it shall not turn back. And because of his iniquity, none can maintain his life. They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle. For my wrath is upon all their multitude. The sword is without. Pestilence and famine are within. He who is in the field dies by the sword. And him who is in the city, famine and pestilence devour. And if any survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them moaning, each one over his iniquity. All hands are feeble, and all knees turn to water. They put on sackcloth, and horror covers them. Shame is on all faces, and baldness on all their heads. They cast their silver into the streets, and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs. For it was the stumbling block of their iniquity, his beautiful ornament they used for pride. And they made their abominable images and their detestable things of it. Therefore, I make it an unclean thing to them, and I will give it into the hands of foreigners for prey, and to the wicked of the earth for the spoil. And they shall profane it. I will turn my face from them, and they shall profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. 
Forge a chain so the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong and their holy places shall be profaned. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. The king mourns, the prince is wrapped in despair, and the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their way, I will do to them. And according to their judgments, I will judge them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. That passage of, of scripture, it, it changes the feeling in the room for me right now. The scene here is dark. We see a glimpse of the anger and the wrath that our holy God has against sin. The corruption of our hearts brought about by Adam's fall in the garden has initiated all sin in this world. But that's the problem, right? Sin. Even the nation of Israel who had the oracles of God through whom the promise of an everlasting covenant has been made. Even they were prone to wander from their God. As a fallen people, we are inclined to move towards sin. Even though God has shown us what is good and right for us, even though we have the moral law of God, even though the scriptures speak of warnings of what will come, still we continue with our sin. But let us remember that the promises to Abraham and to his offspring were not the only promises made in Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 This verse of scripture is known in Christianity as the Proto-Evangelium, the first good news or the first gospel. In this verse of scripture, in the promise that God makes with Adam and Eve, we are told that there will be an offspring, a seed that will bruise the head of the serpent. As Christians who have access to the complete canon of scripture, we know that the seed of the woman is Christ. And we know that God established his covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 17 to be between me and you and your offspring. That is God and Abraham and the seed of Abraham. So now we have at least two very big promises from God to put hope into. Blessings promised to Abraham's offspring and the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Let's fast forward into the New Testament. I want to look at passages from the book of Romans and the book of Galatians to get some insight into, into this. Romans 9, verses 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong 
to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Galatians 3, verses 25 through 29 reads, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what have we been able to tie together so far? We see in Genesis that God made a promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a covenant promise to bless a people, an everlasting covenant to be for their offspring forever. And we also see from Genesis the promise of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. In these Romans 9 and Galatians 3 verses, we tie together the seed of the woman, this offspring of Abraham as Jesus Christ. We also tie together that not all of Abraham's physical seed would receive the benefits of the promise. Because not all Israel is true Israel. Those who have put on Christ, those who have been baptized into Christ, those who have been redeemed by Christ are Abraham's offspring, Abraham's seed, children of the promise. God's promises are for his people. His people are those who are one in Christ. What are the promises that God has made to his people who are now part of the new covenant? God has promised salvation for his people. God has promised that for those who are redeemed, that he will remember their sins no more, that he will put them as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103. God has promised that the wrath that would be poured out upon men for their sins would not be poured out upon his people. Christ has taken that wrath. Christ has taken that punishment. The Father's wrath has been satisfied by his Son. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah 53.10 Christ's promise to his people is that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The, the, I wanted to touch on the yoke part. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of words. I didn't understand growing up. I didn't know. We all come from different backgrounds, from different areas, and, and we don't always attach to the meanings of the things that we hear often. You have to be well in, into adulthood before you catch on to the understandings of these things. So I wanted to talk about this yoke for a second. You know, in Scripture, it's considering the yoke that would be put on oxen. So for, the, for kids or for those who don't uh, know what that is, Think of something heavy. Think of a big brick or like a sack of concrete. Something that weighs a lot, but this yoke was made of wood. 
and it would sit on the neck of the oxen, the giant beast, and it would be used to tie to um, a cart, perhaps there's rock or lumber or bags of grain to be pulled, or it would be tied onto a plow because there is earth to be disrupted for planting, for plowing. Sometimes the, the yoke could be put on two oxen. And so the, the yoke has to be strong enough to carry the, not just to be pulled by the, by the beast, but to pull the weight of what's of the work that's being done. I mean, if you use something as simple as a, a two by four, a branch from a tree, it might snap. So these things had to be heavy. And I wanted you to put that in your mind that Christ says his, his yoke is easy. Because when the yoke was put on the oxen, it meant that there was work. That there was work to be done. But Christ has done the work for us. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. The moral law, a representation of the covenant of works, has been kept for you. Christ has done the work for you. It is not your burden anymore. Let's look at some things that the gathered body is called to do in worship. How about the preaching of the word, for instance? God will continue to expand his kingdom. And how does he do this? How do people learn about who God is? Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, 1 Timothy 4, and from Romans 10. How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Why would these statements of scripture exist if a people weren't expected to sit under the word preached? They is plural. How are they to hear? How do we understand that sin, the sending of a preacher? How could we understand the sending of a preacher unless there's a local church, a, a body, a group of like-minded believers that would have taught and trained up a young man who would be sent? What about singing? Congregational singing. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, Hebrews 2, verse 12. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, Colossians 3, 16. Baptism. In the book of John, chapter 1, it tells us of John the Baptist proclaiming to crowds a baptism of repentance. And when Jesus came to him, 
John exclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We agree that we are to be baptized according to our Savior's command and example. This baptism was done publicly so that the people could witness. Was the example of the Lord's Supper of breaking of bread and sharing of the cup for only an individual? 1 Corinthians 10 reads, The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation. Is, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. We also see in the scriptures a consistent reference and address to those who are gathered together. The epistles are addressed to the churches of Galatia. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. To the saints who are in Ephesus. The passage in Hebrews that we're in today, the, the us and we statements, make it very clear that we are saints who are in communion with one another, both in fellowship and should be together in worship. And they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and the fellowship to breaking of bread and prayers. Acts 2, 42. Christian, you are called to worship on Sunday in obedience with our Lord's command. We are called to gather with a local body of like-minded believers because the scriptures weren't written to individuals. We see the examples over and over again, yet some choose to ignore it. And as God's people, you should participate in these common graces of worship, not just being physically present, when the word is preached, you should be an active listener. When we are singing hymns of praise, you should be singing. When we are being led in prayer, you should be echoing that prayer in your heart and in your mind. And when presented at the Lord's Supper, after examining ourselves and understanding the explanations of warnings and of benefits, we should partake of the bread and the cup, and in doing so, we proclaim. That is, we announce officially or publicly, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why is it important that we would gather together for worship? The promises of God are for his people. God chooses to bless his people through these ordinary means of grace that we participate in publicly and congregationally as a gathered body. It is easy to see through a plain reading of scriptures that the local body is the conduit that God uses to touch the hearts and the minds of his people through his Holy Spirit applying his power effectually. That brings us back to where we are today with saints in communion with one another through their unity in Christ who fellowship with one another and are called to gather and worship our God. He is our God, and we are his people. The promises of God are for his people. Again, Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood 
of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Some of your translations use forsake rather than neglect in verse 25. Do not forsake the assembly. That is, do not leave the assembly behind. Do not abandon it. Is the assembly and it, I just said, do not abandon it. No, it's a them. Do not abandon them. Do not abandon those whom God has given you and to whom he has given you to. Yeah. Last week we spoke of, uh, we read a lot from chapter 27 of our confession. In paragraph 2 it reads, Saints by profession are bound to maintain an holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. Do not neglect, do not forsake those whom you have been given to, but encourage one another. Your presence is an encouragement, sharing your struggles, your trials, your joys, and your sorrows, yet continually praying and praising God in the gathered assembly is encouraging. Praying for and with your brothers and sisters is encouraging. When someone can stand and look you in the eye while teaching and preaching, it is an encouragement. The fact that we know our lives are not easy, yet we are here for one another, is encouraging. For those of you who have been redeemed by Christ, let me encourage you to consider this message today. Our flesh kicks back at the things that are good for us. We drag ourselves to church. We mumble our way through the singing. We try not to fall asleep during the sermon and we hurry on our way as soon as the services are over to get on with our lives. We are busy. But the Lord's day is meant for you to rest. Rest from your works, words and thoughts about worldly employments and recreations and take up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship. Consider how good our God is, that he has given us these things for the building up and expansion of his kingdom and how you and I and all of God's people get to partake. For those outside of Christ, let me encourage you to consider the promises of God. Salvation, everlasting life, a freedom from the bondage of sin. Final promise, 
from the book of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, that is Christ. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Let's go a little prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your revealed word to us. For the understanding from the plain readings of scripture that your word is for your people. Not individually, but together. In life, in trials. As we explained last week, in a sweet fellowship, communion, and as we see this week, in a sweet worship, communion. We ask that we not take these things for granted, that we remember the Sabbath day, that we remember the rest that you offer for our souls, for our weary minds. And not just for us, but for all who would come. The everlasting promise to the offspring of Abraham. Those who put on Christ <laughs> are heirs according to the promise. We ask that our hearts be made more thankful for the truth of Scripture. In Christ's name, amen.